0: I've always been fascinated by comeback stories. You, know, you fall in love with the hero or the teen. You're overwhelmed by the odds they're facing, the circumstances they have to overcome.
1: I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. Yeah, right. That's the way it
0: is. It's down there, and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. You get busy dying. And you cheer when they when they realize their desired end game. I recently became a fan of Formula One racing because of Netflix's docudrama, Drive to Survive. And that fascination led me to discovering another documentary about a driver called Nicky Lotta. Back then when he drove, Formula One was a death trap. I mean, these cars are made for speed, not safety. And Lotta, arguably one of the world's best drivers ever, got into a fiery crash. His car exploded in flames. Trapped inside, body badly burned, Inhaling dangerous fumes that damaged his blood and his lungs in the hospital he was given his last rites. Yet four weeks later, he drove in the Italian Grand Prix and came fourth. And a year later, he won the championship. Hollywood directors love the story arc of this comeback. They get to take the audience's incredible roller coaster. We are hanging on and hoping that they get through the next corner, the next downward spiral. And you think of movies like Rocky or Rudy or the Shawshank Redemption. Remember the Titans, Aaron Brockovich. And within my library podcast, so often I've told a story of somebody that has gone through their own comeback, that found a new path in life. I found a way to succeed where so many others would have failed because of their circumstances. And you know, I think of W. Mitchell, not only surviving that motorcycle crash, but an airplane crash that left him a paraplegic, badly burned. and spending his whole life talking about it's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it. The lessons are out there. Life is out there.
1: And it is merely that you are going to be the first person ever to persevere, ever to conquer, ever to
0: learn a lesson that no one else has ever learned. It's it's pretty hard for me to imagine. Or the childhoods of people like Jennifer Minard Shand or Victoria Pelche or Lester Martin, and how through helping hands, through resilience and fortitude, they fought their way back.
2: Maybe desperately trying to regain some sort of power or control um, within my situation. Uh, And I have to say, I had to do a lot of spiritual cleansing to close those dark doors because that was just a really weird
1: time.
0: It just proves that within humanity, that not handing out, but giving people a helping hand can make all the difference in the world. Well, the story I'm going to share with you today follows a similar arc. It has all the notes of a great song. There's tragedy and triumph, there's defeat and defiance. And as I just stated earlier, it'll again talk about the importance of why it matters that we spend time mattering to others. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network,
2: and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Joining me today is Edward Henry, a successful entrepreneur who helps organizations improve the way they sell. And we're going to get to that part of the story later. But first, I want all of you to imagine what it was like growing up the way Edward Henry did and whether you could climb out of the hole the mental and physical circumstances that Edward faced. Edward Henry, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
1: Thank you, Tony, thank you for having me on today.
0: You grew up in Nova Scotia, and at age five, your grandfather noticed something about you. What did he notice?
1: Well, you know, it's kind of uh, strange, but I used to um, I used to get these spankings for not listening. And uh, my grandfather picked up on one day because my grandfather was, uh, uh, he, he was partially deaf to about maybe 70-80% and um, due to a friendly fire in the uh, in the armed forces and he picked up on something that he believed that I, I also suffered with some form of a hearing impairment.
0: And so what did they find out when they tested you?
1: Well, they found out I was about 85, approximately 85-90% to 90% deaf at that point, um, that I was lip reading. And uh, it was my grandfather picked up on it that you know I couldn't hear anything from behind, but if you spoke in front of me, I was I was lip reading and I was um, able to communicate.
0: So certainly a lot of spankings that you didn't deserve. And then the next thing that kind of happened was that you moved to Toronto. I think at age seven. What what brought you to Toronto?
1: Well, my my mother and father were having difficult times. And um, around that time I remember going back and forth to school, I was doing a lot of speech therapy and stuff like that. I, I had stuttering problems and um, I remember very vividly that you know I'd be teased in school. As a matter of fact, one girl would even, uh, she's about four years older than me, would hold me up against the fence and have me repeat the word sorry over and over again because it came out like snorri. So I just remember around that time that we all got in the car and we moved to uh, Toronto for what appeared to be a new start in life. And my mother and father, who were struggling, really needed that. Um, their marriage was was uh, was having problems, and they believed a the new start in Toronto would actually do something better for our lives.
0: As was it just you in the backseat, or did you have siblings?
1: I had a, a younger brother and a sister at the time. I was about uh, seven years of age. My my sister was six, and my brother was four.
0: And did that move to Toronto achieve what your parents hoped it would do in terms of their marriage, or did things
1: unravel because of that change? No, things actually got worse. Um, There was an infidelity with uh, my mother and and my father was enraged and it caused what I knew was going to be um, that separation. So I think it was around um, Halloween night, we left. uh, He took my brother and myself on a train from Ontario back to Nova Scotia. I remember it vividly because trick-or-treating on a train was not really uh, forthcoming with a lot of treats. So I can remember that sticking out, but we came home on the train that, that night. And, um, and we're there for about a month before my mother came back down with a new partner in her life.
0: And you describe in one of the interviews that I read about you that the new man that she brought into her life was far from someone you would call an upstanding human being. Tell me a little bit about what he was like.
1: Well, he was very violent. Um, he was a constant drug user. Um, and what made it worse was he was actually related to my father. He was my father's uh, cousin. And um, that made it very difficult for my father to really get past. Not only that, my mother, um, the man insisted being called um, dad. And that created, I guess, a lot of confusion because we knew he was our cousin as well. And, um, and the violence that he would put on my mother over the course of the next two years um, was just absolutely um, horrific. And we were afraid of him.
0: Edward, you paint this new guy in your life who tries to claim to be your dad, who's violent, who's abusive. And the next thing you know, your family's just like a pinball bouncing around a machine, tilting almost every time. You move 22 times and even end up in a shelter. What do you remember as your childhood in terms of what it felt like to be a refugee in your own country?
1: For those two years that we spent with Neil and the relationship of my mother, we witnessed um, unspeakable abuse and in particularly one time before we actually ended up in uh, in between moving back and forth there was one specific incident that really sticks in my mind and even my brother and my sister was the time that I came home and my mother was laying on the uh, stairs with my brother and sister crying behind her and at that point Neil actually broke both of her legs and busted out her teeth with those heavy telephone receivers that were made back in the late 70s. She had no teeth in her mouth, there was just blood all over her mouth. And as I walked in, he was approaching me with a butter knife behind his back, and my mother pretty much got up on those feet, on those two broken legs, and um, tried to fight, her off, fight him off as best as he could until his mother actually showed up and taken him out of the house. It wasn't long after that, that I remember us being in a homeless shelter at Kensington Community Homeless Shelter, with my mother, and uh, I know this sounds strange, but um, the homeless shelters compared to the life that we were living seem more like a hotel. Like there was more stability in a homeless shelter than the way that our lives were—more food, um, a, a more, a more, um, a safer environment—and then and that that really kind of sums up what we went through during that two years. If that makes any sense.
2: You're listening
0: to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. They often talk about this cycle of abuse between the bully and the victim. Did that final horrific abuse create a permanent break between your mom and Neil? Or was that something that was done through the courts? Or were you always worried that the next moment he would walk back in that door?
1: No, it it continued on. And it actually, we we moved back to Nova Scotia where it continued again. And the worst incident happened where uh, he beat my mother very badly and the police showed up to the house where he thought we were and uh my mother was already outside of the house but he thought we were still in the house itself my brother and i and he and when the police um showed up he was actually telling the police that he went anywhere near the um near that apartment to arrest him that he was going to kill my brother and i he had a knife in the sand and the police were approaching him and they found out they literally went to my mother and they had to like kind of almost slap her to knock her out of the shock to let her know that you know for her to tell her that no that we're not in the house and that's when they approached and arrested him um he did approximately about a year in jail at that point and then when he got out he was given 24 hours to leave cape breton island and where was your dad through all of this um my dad was was around my dad was back and forth like my father my father still tried to be in our lives and still try to deal with this situation um and the problem i think the anger and the resentments my father was having towards my mother it really clouded his way of being still a good father and and he just kept drinking he just kept burying that pain and anger into into the bottle
0: the last thing i want to ask is neil gets told he has to move away from cape breton what i understand also is your mom took your one of your siblings took i guess your sister away and you had to. what happened then
1: yeah, so so you know, when Neil when Neil was thrown in jail, there was about a two year period where we lived with my mother. There was myself, my mother, and my fo- and my little brother ended up living with my father out of my grandmother's. And um, for whatever reason, my mother uh, decided that uh, I guess for economic reasons she needed to leave, and she couldn't take she couldn't take us with her. She just uh, and apparently the man she was with at the time did not want us to go at that time with her. So what she did was she would taken us to an aunt, rather than my father, and said that uh, she'd be back in four hours. And we didn't hear from her for about six months later. Um, she did come back six months later to get my sister, but I was I moved in with my father and my brother and my sister, and then he came back to get my she came back to get my sister approximately It was six months later. I was about eleven years of age, and um, and and at that point I was living with my father, who really started to drink heavily. Uh, with the care of myself and my brother living with him
0: edward it looks like you followed your father's path in terms of using alcohol to ease your pain how bad did your drinking get
1: well you know by the time i hit by the time i was 21 i had three duis um there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of fighting all the way through it and i was starting to find my way but you know I, I never got i never really got rid of the anger i had anger um ever since i was 11 12 living with my father in that home and um you know, my days and nights were really about, you know, fighting off drunks and, um, you know, and really, really having fist fights with adults. And then at one particular point, there was, there was a physical abuse. I was raped by one of my father's friends and, um, within a couple of days, other people in the neighborhood knew about it because once my father got drinking, he really didn't, uh, keep his mouth that quiet, but, um, there were people that, so there was humiliation with that. And the rage that I had as a child just kind of stuck with me all the way. Um, even through my adult years. And I was never really aware that that was still there. Um, But but you found a way to stop drinking, didn't you? I did. I just, uh, I I found I was becoming a little bit like, a lot like my father. And and it was important that I just kind of, you know, refrain from alcohol and try to get my life right some way or another. And in
0: 1990, this kid that most would have written off, you meet someone named Glenn Rankin. And it Turns out to be a life turning moment for you. So, who's Glenn Rankin, and how did you two get connected?
1: So, Glenn Rankin at the time he was running a music promotion company, and I was um, and I was running around with a little rap album and, and a demo that I was trying to promote and push. And Glenn agreed to promote a few concerts for me and and take the role as a manager. And um, and that was kind of where we first met, and he and he found you know he just he he really taken a liking into what I did and and he really wanted to support me and help me push it you know a music career
0: was rap a manifestation of your rage that this is the way you could start expressing who you were
1: well it was it was an, it was a way that would express where I was who I was but through Glenn Glenn was a professional salesperson and he also owned an electronics um uh, outlet and uh and I was fascinated with Glenn's entrepreneurial ability. So, I, I, you know, Glenn and I started becoming very good friends. And at one point, I, I started to enjoy um, selling more than I did doing music. And that's where I started to really focus my time and energy.
0: And when you talk about your relationship with Glenn, most people would run when they heard your background story. He didn't. So what was it about Glenn and you that you could, feel you could build a relationship based on trust versus the most of the relationships in your life where you're being not only let down but often assaulted if not abused
1: well well glenn was a couple of years older than me and glenn kind of really acted like a um a bit of a bigger brother from the beginning and um he spent real quality time with me uh teaching me how to sell buying me books to read stuff like that and and glenn noticed the. Uh, Noticed I had a certain tenacity that I just didn't want to quit and he admired that about me But more importantly, Glenn was just always honest with me. I just felt like I could trust him And um, and that was a pivotal relationship going forward and also in belief that I could do something more than just the things I was doing um, my you know insecurity and rage were the two most common um feelings that I would have and you know, and that that kind of really showed in the way that I would handle most of my affairs going forward but Glenn really really wanted to help me kind of um, find myself and and really and really grow. He was a true friend.
0: And then you moved back to Ontario and you get a job at Majestic Sound Warehouse, building your currency and sales. Why did you choose to leave Glenn and the security of his business and move off to try to find your own path back in Ontario?
1: Well, because I was ambitious and um, I always found, I was always impatient with the end result like i could never run fast enough i was always rushing i was trying to run away from my family trying to, i was always trying to rush somewhere to, to security almost and i always thought money and success may be where i would find security and um, or safety more or less it was safety i think i was always looking for and um, so when I came to Ontario, you know, I, I, I was enjoying a successful career in sales. And then all of a sudden, I, I just wasn't happy. I had no friends and it, I thought it was best to move back home.
0: And in 2000, a decade after meeting Glenn, you meet another what I call Yoda, you know, someone who takes on the role you describe as a surrogate father in many ways. Who was he and why was he so important to the reinvention and reimagination of who Edward Henry is?
1: um it was a gentleman named gary lieb he owned i went to work for gary for a number of years and the thing that was so amazing with gary was uh gary was just a good man a good father you could see he was very organized a true entrepreneur and uh he was somebody that really took the time to show me about being a good person right i mean like i learned a lot from glenn as far glenn really helped me get on track gary kind of showed me more or less about trying, you know, that it's more important to win in life than it is in business. And even though I didn't understand that in the beginning, I was still listening to Gary and Gary really gave me that fatherhood um, relationship, even, and, and and I, he could see that I didn't have that from my parents growing up. and. Uh, And he really taken the time to teach me some things that that I really didn't get growing up as a kid.
0: Edward, what advice can you give to other people listening who have been dealt one, if not several of the cards you have in terms of how to find a way to trust people
1: again? It was only in the last five years I really learned to let go of that anger and rage and that enemy that I had going forward. It was only men that I allowed to get to know me below the surface. I never trusted a woman. I never understood the value of a woman until I met Joy. I literally tell people that she cut my BS, like she, she cut through it all and how I was rushing around and how that rage was there and how everybody was an enemy of mine. She held me to an accountability, no excuses. Like, I mean, there was no shortcuts. And between the lessons of the previous people before, um, Joy taught me the importance of not giving up, being the best person I could be regardless of, of anything, but really being the best dad, the best business person, whatever it is, but do it with a sense of integrity and honesty. That's very rare.
0: Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. When we come back, Edward Henry is growing, both as an individual and, interesting enough, as an entrepreneur, and his expertise is sales. He puts both together and finds unprecedented success. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million, decade long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC.
1: Ordinary is one person, but extraordinary, you know, joy helped me find my passion and really bring it all together. So the lessons of the previous people and the friendships that I had before, but but somebody really taught me how to trust and really see the value of a woman and let her in and really teach me how to find who I am.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Today, my guest is Edward Henry, a successful entrepreneur who spent his childhood living the life With someone portrayed in a Dickens novel. Poor, abused, no foundation, or people who believed him. All of it changed by meeting two individuals and then his wife, Joy. Edward, I want to talk about your first entrepreneurial venture, because to me, it's sort of from somebody that was a rapper and got into electronics. You get into the telecom business with a friend. Tell me what that business was all about.
1: Well, at the time, um, prepaid telecom become popular, and... uh... And before it became really popular, I went on this trip to Florida and seen this commercial about how, you know, you could prepay for your home telephone service. So I came home and told my friend about it, in which he replied and said it was the worst idea he ever heard. You know, two months later we were doing it, about um three years later we sold it to a, a public telecom company um for for over a million dollars. And that was one of our first real true successes as far as a business and a an nexus strategy that we were able to perform. And then from there, more or less became, you know, I, I continued to work with that public telecom company until I went and started uh, the first ever sales school in Canada.
0: So before we get to the sales school, you're, you're now starting to see wealth creating success. Do you ever feel there's a foundation underneath you? Does somebody that comes from what you did, a life of shifting sand and, and demons and monsters ever start? breathing and feeling confident that your life going forward will permanently be changed
1: um i can't say that i had like i always believed that i i could do many things but there were still things that were missing i mean i you know as far as the stability of person i mean i cared a lot about wealth i cared a lot about money i was driven but i still went about some of these things the wrong way and um and i still looked for shortcuts i didn't appreciate the importance of prepping hard work and stuff like that so it wasn't until much later than that that i actually really understood what was required to become truly successful as a person and as a businessman
0: so in 2007 you create the sales institute of canada as a college and it receives the first ever professional sales training diploma by the ministry of training colleges and universities in ontario how did that all come about
1: well you know when we first created that curriculum uh, it had to be assessed and it was a bold statement to say that we created an education that would be the standard of sales education in Canada Um, but after really and, and what we did was we didn't try to rewrite a manual we we went we went and looked at everything that was out there that worked and we grabbed what we felt was what made up the best element of selling for every type of industry regardless of what the target market was and whether it was selling to an individual or selling to a business it didn't matter so we created that selling scope Presented to the ministry and and after defense, you know, really selling selling that curriculum to the ministry, they were able to see that this was the proper educational format.
0: And that success leads you into another entrepreneurial venture, Edward Henry Company.
1: So in 2007, when the um, professional sales diploma was approved, it was the irony of that was I I felt like I accomplished something, but then I realized that the very thing I accomplished was now extinct, almost like the way that we selling didn't matter anymore. Um, because of technology, social media, and smartphones, I knew that the sales industry, the profession, was gonna be hit with almost like uh, a culture shock. And it it was, I mean, most of us salespeople really didn't like using emails, let alone CRM software and technology. So all of a sudden, salespeople had to embrace technology and they weren't ready for it. So Edward Henry Company became a company that was based on really, really bringing the actual full selling system to scope, including technology and everything that a salesperson has to do. So we became more like sales nerds and a sales technology company more than just sales trainers.
0: And give me an example of what you would do for a company. So if I was looking to improve the the performance of my sales force and I was to call in Edward Henry, what would I expect from you?
1: Well, the first thing that we do is really get to know what your challenges are. Um, we use the same program regardless because our program works in a way that it's fully adaptable. So we really try to understand the business. We do an assessment on the on the company to understand its leadership, its sales force, and even their their um, hiring practices, the type of salespeople that they require. And then we and then once we've taken that snapshot, we really blend our system with it and and modify it to make sure that's meeting their company model and their objections and this has been a very successful model that we've done with well over 70 80 different companies over the last 5 to 10 years
0: so what's the ideal client for your for Edward Henry and how would they get hold of you
1: well an ideal client for Edward Henry is any is is a business that that has more than 10 salespeople that really struggles to see transparently where their opportunities, where they're getting beat, um, and really, really, a we've developed a system of selling that works better than anyone else out there. I mean, we really changed our whole um, way of thinking, and um, and more or less the way we we really do it is that we teach people that if you sell the way you date, you will be successful because the things you do in dating are the things that you should be doing when you're selling that you don't. You know, and those things are like uh, setting mutual expectations with your client, really understanding their expectation, um, but but helping them to understand how that relationship journey would go forward, using the same level of accountability, the same level of working, planning, everything that we would do in dating, and we do the very same things, we went and created into a system for selling and it works. Our clients have seen results, it's easily adaptable, easier to learn, and um, and more importantly, it, it's it's more about working the deal than, than conning the deal. So we, we literally tell our clients, you know you're either convincing or conning like convincing or selling. And we really put an emphasis on that we teach people how to sell, not convince.
0: So I want to get back to some of your personal life because I am so admire the path you've taken, the success you've had. and I know that from some of the clients that work with that just they just rave about what you bring to them. Tell me a little bit about what's your relationship with now with your brother and sister.
1: My brothers, I have have a great relationship with both my siblings. Um, My uh, my brother and I are are just best of friends. We talk regularly. My sister's had many challenges as a result of what she experienced growing up as well, and um, she's had a hard time finding her place. But we're still very close, and um, and and us three are are really, you know, we we. It's almost like we only understand what we experience. Um, my relationship with my mother is good, uh, and and we've moved past a lot of it. And, um, and for the most part, yeah, my father passed away approximately in, two, yeah, in 2014. And um, the last 10 years before he died, my father became what I would say is my closest and best friend.
0: And my dad was an alcoholic and really reclaimed his life uh, through medication. He was bipolar and he became very important in my life and my kids' life his last 10 years as well. That must be something you treasure almost as much as anything on this planet is the fact that you two found each other in a place where, where, you know, maybe demons were at the very least suppressed, if not uh, diminished completely. Yes. Do you have kids?
1: I do. I have, uh, I have three children. Um, the youngest lives with me still. He's in the second year of university. He's 19. And, um, the relationship that I've, Joy taught me how to be a father, a, a real accountable father, no excuses. And my relationship with my son, more or less that lives with me right now. And the other kids are strong, but my relationship with my son, I really learned to, um, I really learned to parent without the emotion and anger, but more or less about, about what's important. And, um, and I, I'm I've learned to do this more by example, and my son, and, and really showing my son, you know, that that we don't quit, that we fight, that we do things honestly, that we don't use excuses, and and no matter what, we're always responsible for our empath.
0: You know, we we all grew up with our parents talking about how they walked five miles to school and the sacrifices they made, but your story is is you know something that Hollywood could script. Do your, do your kids have a a real any understanding, if not an appreciation for
1: what life was like for you growing up. Um, yes, uh, specifically, um, they they understand what I went through. They it's still mind blowing and unbelievable to them. Um, but for the most part, they uh, yeah they have an appreciation of where I come from, and not just that. I, I think my all my kids feel like they can they can speak to me about just about anything at any point.
0: And so Edward, you've got a non for profit happening now. What what's that all about?
1: In March of 2020, there was a unique when the pandemic hit and I had to shut down my business in Ontario, which I really didn't want to like anybody else. And these lockdowns were horrendous. And all I could think about was the need of of how a society has to have continuance. So for about two years, we worked on a program called Safe Space First, um, nonprofit driven, and it was all about building safe space management, um, universal universal methods for safe space management we created an entire system and an infrastructure for how to keep people safe and we called it safe space first because we wanted to give it a name with the highest level of corporate citizenship so um we worked together on a system that uh that really was about true business continuity and sustainability that can that where businesses can find ways to stay open and keep people safe At the highest level. So, I mean, that was a big thing for us. And we continue to work with um, different government departments Um, right now, different government, different regional governments about how to implement this system in different areas.
0: I always end my show with the three things that uh, I take away or I've learned or I feel matter most. And and the first is a word that so easily rolls off our our lips, but really is the foundation, I think, of humanity and progress. And that's trust. And not only how you had to trust others, but others trusted you, I think is just uh, one of the magic chords at play. I think the second thing is that you never stopped believing in yourself. You stopped drinking because you knew you wanted to be better than your dad was. You fell in love with cells. You, you kept trying to find and pursue something and make a better life. And the final thing I think is just how much family has played in your life. First, in a in a horrific way, but reclaiming your relationship with your parents, finding you know people like Glenn becoming part of, as you said, almost like a brother, and of course Joy and what she's done for you to to realize that within you is not an angry human being, but an incredibly uh, successful one and one that inspires others. So, Edward Henry, I'm very honored to have you on Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. Shadow that matters is my true labor of love. I now get it when people say that all they've done in their life has led them to a certain place, a certain task. I certainly feel that way. And part of it is because of these times we live in. They're different. They're frustrating. We're living with so much uncertainty and insecurity. And I think it's important to counter this overpowering negativity and feelings of impossibility by sharing stories of people who, despite their circumstances, still find a way to make things happen. See, my belief is when we personalize their stories, we in fact take their journeys personally. We walk with them. And in doing so, we can uncover insights or even life lessons that can help us get to where we need, want, and deserve to go. I learned from everyone in this show and their approach to life, how they transformed or reinvented or simply their resilience. And all of this renews my spirit for the human spirit. And some stories are so easy for me to do as they involve a dream and the will to make it a reality. I think of that kid, Chris Hadfield, who looked up at the stars and dreamed of becoming an astronaut and how he purposely set his life up to become one. If
2: I was actually going to get chosen as an astronaut, I was going to have to change who I was. And so I thought, OK, well, cool. I'm going to grow up to be something. Why don't I grow up to be that? And so let's start doing things that, that maybe give me the skills so that someday I might have a chance to do that. So it just kind of helped shape my choices. Like, what should I do this weekend. What book should I read? What uh, what courses should I take? You know, most of your life is not spent in school. It seems like it, but it's not true. And and you have a whole bunch of time, even when you're in school, to, to sort of end, independent thought. And so I just pursued it. And then as I got older, you know, I, I became old enough, hey, I could get my scuba license. Astronauts do spacewalks. They dive underwater to learn how to do spacewalks. Great. That's me. One step closer to being an astronaut. And then astronauts fly in space. I kind of decided, Hey, anything that is a verb, maybe I could learn to do, you know, uh, dive, fly, sing, dance, juggle, whatever it is, you know, Hey, those are just verbs. And, and I could be a person who could do those things.
0: Other stories are more heart wrenching. Change hits like a sledgehammer. The life path you thought you're on is taken away from you. Imagine being Rick Hansen, an aspiring Olympic athlete, and he wakes up in a hospital, and he'll never have the use of his legs again. And when I ask him at the end of the interview if he feels fortunate to be given that
1: gift, here's what he has to say. Being uh, grateful for where you are. Take each day as a gift. See how far you can go and, uh, and make it count. Everybody's got their bag of hammers. My situation is visible. But man, there's so many people suffering with these huge invisible challenges and and suffering sometimes in silence. And and so in reality, let's make the best of it
0: and normalize it and then know that we're not alone. Casey Mentz, a brilliant dancer and choreographer, but she was told she was too black to dance, even compared to other artists of color. She refused to accept the status quo and instead invented her own style of dance and then partnered and collaborated with some of the top artists in the world. Artists like Rihanna and Drake.
2: Doing traditional West African really invigorated my spirit in a way that I I had forgotten when I was growing up because I was doing it as a kid. The movement that was coming up and and the inspiration that I was starting to feel being reconnected to spirit, being able to kind of dance or feel like I was dancing for something larger than than my physical body. I always wanted to choreograph, I always wanted to create, but I knew that I didn't want to do just traditional West African because there was a, there was a box in a frame and I still wanted to move outside of that box.
0: Mohamed Faki, a recent episode, the way he describes the Canadian dream and how he came here with nothing and made something out of it. And more importantly, what he's doing to put a hand out to help others with his intellectual, emotional, financial capital.
2: Leadership is about not benefiting you. It's about how much you benefit others with what you're doing and the opportunity you have and the platform you built. Not doing the easy thing and not doing only the profitable thing. It's simply doing the right thing. All Canadian together. That's the new Canada that I hope will be represented.
0: The stories I find the hardest to share are the ones where people had to overcome a horrific childhood. With Jennifer Menard Chan, Victoria Pelche, and of course, what we talked about today with Edward Henry and his siblings. No child should spend an hour in that situation, let alone their entire childhood. As a society as value-driven as ours and with our resources, I think we have to do more to protect our children and to give them a fighting chance. As individuals, we can reach out with a helping hand like Glenn Rankin did to Edward, or we can support the organizations that are there to help. You know, RBC is my sponsor, and I know the expectation of listeners is sponsored content is always a sell. But nothing could be further from the truth with RBC. I'm so lucky to have found them. They never ask for editorial approval or control, nor do they insist or even ask to be any of the shows. I invite them in. The reason is they believe in the importance of sharing positivity and stories of possibility. And they do so much more than invest in a podcast. If you're a young Edward Henry or sister, you're struggling to cope, you're in a situation that's more dark than light, or you're simply trying to define your path in life. RBC supports so many organizations and initiatives that are there to support you. And I know that one brand or one podcast cannot change the realities of today or what tomorrow can bring. But I also know that all of us can. It's Tony Chapman, let's chat soon.
2: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.